Hello and welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast with me, your host, Fabio Molle. Every week I speak to the big hitters in the world of tennis, both on and off the court, about the game and how we can all get 1% better every day at what we do. As an ex-national team player, I know exactly how tough this can be. So I'm on a journey to get the very best tips and advice from the world of tennis. Last week on the Functional Tennis Podcast, I spoke to former Northern Ireland tennis player and now coach Peter Botwell. Peter told me how his journey in tennis began, why he made the decision to retire, and how he always wanted to become a coach. Peter also told me about his non-negotiables, about the time he lost 15 matches in a row, broke down, and how he got it all together. It's a really great chat, and it's one you definitely must go check out. This week on the podcast, I meet the current lead national coach for the USTA on the West Coast, Johnny Parks. With this US setup, Johnny helps develop some of the best US prospects at the US training facility in West California. Johnny's helped develop a range of skill levels from top 100 ATP WTA professional players, top 100 ITF juniors and USTA national champions and more. He's definitely at the cutting edge of player development for tennis and he also produces great content online, so I'm really pleased to have him on the podcast. In our conversation, Johnny explains why playing a young Nick Nikolai Bashasvili was a bit of a reality check for him. We talk about Johnny's role in the US setup and what his biggest challenge was in his early coaching days. But first, let's learn a bit more about Johnny's background. Johnny Parks, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Yeah, ready to have a good chat with you. Great, yeah, long overdue. We've been posting your content the past few years, maybe you could say since COVID got underway, I more came across your posts and you have some great exercises. I think you've you've some great you know team exercises from what I've seen that you put up. Some lot of like where there's two to six people involved and there's exercise to keep them busy and active. Working on agility, we only posted one this morning and people love that sort of content. So thanks for putting out the great content. And we did have a chat a few days ago, and until we had that chat, I thought you were just a physical trainer. I didn't know your full background. You're really a coach who then got into physical training and who's now going back the other way and you're just combining both, which is great. So maybe let's kick things off before we'd normally get big into, you know, your tennis playing days. But let's quickly touch on that and then start on the coaching journey, but how it all came about. So and where you're from, if you look at your content and you never heard it, you think you're American because I only know the IMG <laughs> side of things. But then yeah. I, I, I knew you were British. So tell us how everything came about, where tennis started for you. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, obviously not American. I'm uh, English. Uh, grew up in Southport, close to Liverpool. Um, from an early age, I actually went to school down south um, for tennis. Uh, my dad knew the director of tennis at a school called Millfield. I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, Millfield School, and um, was able to very very fortunate to get a scholarship to go there, play tennis for five years as a kid there, and then went to America, University of New Mexico, got a college scholarship, and ended up out in America. So had a great four years playing on the team in in, in college tennis, and afterwards got straight into coaching. And whilst I was doing that, I was also shadowing and 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 basically interning in the strength and conditioning department at the University of New Mexico whilst I was also coaching juniors and things like that and getting getting my sort of coaching career going so I was doing that side by side a lot of it majority of it more coaching but the very strong interest in the strength and conditioning and then as I 
as I came back to the UK, I, you know, kind of had some visa, visa stuff going on. So came back to the UK, you know, I went from running my own program, my own academy to doing some coaching on Regent's Park in, in Regent's Park, coaching, you know, little kids and beginners, Red Bull, Orange Bull and adults. And at the same time, I was popping in and out of Gosling, uh, Gosling Tennis Center, which at the time was an LTA center. Uh, I was helping a few players out there and able to be around some great coaches, learn from them as well, and started traveling with some players too around the world, uh, some futures, challenges, things like that. And again, like on the road at that level, a lot of players, you know, can't really afford a coach, a fitness coach, whatever on the road. So I ended up being that person that was helping doing both. When I came back to America, um, got more into the coaching side, um, started a program, grassroots program. Um, going into schools, trying to get kids into into our local local club, and then after after about a year and a half, the USTA called me to to do a job for them in uh, in their player ID and development department. Yeah, that was mostly about putting forward a structure, a train, a supplemental training and camp structure camp structure around for Team USA that involved me going around the country, and I, I wore many many hats in that role. So I was on court a lot. I was doing a lot of the athletic development for the kids. So I was putting it into our camp programs. I was doing coach education. I was doing, you know, parent support, parent education, uh, amongst other things. So, you know, and then after that, I left and I went to IMG during COVID at uh, September 2020. And that's where I took, took the step to go all in on the strength and conditioning, the fitness side of our sport, something that's always been a part of me and my coaching. And I think every every coach has a little bit of a bias towards how they coach some are extremely technical some have a very good eye are very good at the tactical side my bias was always i was very very physical heavy in my practices footwork movement efficiency you know as the as the late great nick bolletieri said you can't hit what you can't reach so that was my bias so this was an opportunity i got a call from img um and i said why not this is a chance to go all in so i did and then uh was there two years, had a great two years, working with many players, juniors, pros, um, kind of the full the full spectrum of levels. And I had a great time. But it was earlier earlier last year, around April, May, I got a call from the USTA. They wanted me to be a lead national coach and oversee all their junior programming for the West Coast facility in Carson, California. So this sort of navigates back to more the tennis side. And uh, I think, as I told you a few days ago, it doesn't really make much sense when you look at my resume on a piece of paper. Yeah. But for me, it very much makes sense in terms of the skill sets and the things I've experienced I've learned from so many people along the way and how it all comes together. So, yeah, that's that's it, really, in well, a nutshell. <laughs> well, let's let's break it down. First of all, I remember we did a post there. It was Labour Cup and Fredo had a press conference and he was like, look, the best movers are the best players. I'm not sure he said the best players, the best movers. You're totally with that analogy, are you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a movement dominant sport. It's about speed. It's about power around the court now. Both the, the, the men's and the women's side, you're seeing some unbelievable athletes in our sport. I mean, obviously, Federer brought brought this sort of new era in, and then 
you know, Rafa took it to another level and then Novak's taking it to another level again. And, and everyone's a little bit different in their physical qualities, but those physical qualities are extremely high. And on the women's side too, it's the, the athleticism is unbelievable in our sport now. Um, so if you don't have that as a prerequisite, you, you're going to struggle to to make it at the pro end. You know, a lot of my role right now is is trying to help these these juniors and kids become a little bit more athletic, understand how to be better movers. You know, I think there's different qualities to movement. There's the tech, like anything, right? There's the technique of it, how you move. Um, there's the physical capacities, what you have to move with. And then there's the reactive element. There's the brain component, the eyes and the brain component. And, you know, we, we, we can only move based off what we're seeing and reacting from. So I think um, you have to you have to learn how to develop all three of those in order to be a great mover. Can you make the ordinary mover into an extraordinary mover? You know the way sometimes they're juniors and they're really good ball strikers. They play good matches, and people might say, "Look, he's great, but his movement. You know, does he have the athletic ability long term? Do you think that's limited by you know your your body, your makeup, or?" Do you think with the right work, they can become great movers? Yeah, I think it's both. It definitely helps if you have, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're born with, good, with some good genetics, some, some good DNA with parents that, that were athletes, I think it certainly helps you get to where you need to be a little bit quicker, assuming you've obviously got good guidance. But it also can be developed. I, in my experience, it's just those that are, you know, not, not as athletic it just takes longer and longer and longer, you know, to persist in developing those athletic qualities. Are they ever going to be as good as the natural movers that that may be on that path? Probably not. But I think our sport has shown that you can still have very good players that may not be the best athletes. Our sport can still develop great tennis players that uh, may not necessarily be super athletes. So it's a little bit tougher for sure. It takes a little bit more patience from the from the player. To, to, to buy into that that strength and conditioning, that athletic side. But I definitely think there's, there's like anything, I think it can be developed. That's if they put in the work. It's always comes well, down and to assuming that. They, uh, yeah, that's assuming yeah. they do that, yeah. <laughs> so we've gone ahead to where we want to where we want to start this but i have one more question before we pair it back over the past few years uh, you've worked with some great athletes juniors is there anybody you've worked with that really stands out from a movement perspective that you say that you could say their movement alone will bring them many levels ahead in the tennis game yeah i mean there's a there's a couple when i first started at img i was very fortunate to work with a few few younger players, like transitioning pro players. There was, um, you know, I spent a very short period of time. I actually did a little bit more on the tennis coaching side with him, but um, John Cheng Shang, Jerry Shang, who the Chinese, um, 17-year-old Chinese uh, kid who uh, made a good run at Australian Open. He's an unbelievable athlete, unbelievable. He's one of those players that it doesn't matter who he works with, he's going to be pulling coaches along with him because he's, he's an unbelievable talent he's a good kid he's somebody that again just just he's got a he's got a dad who played professional chinese soccer he's got a mom who's a championship table tennis player so he's got some good genes right there you know there's another another younger guy close in age to him uh, martin dam six for eight american guy for a big guy he's an exceptional mover you know he's his he's got a czech czech background so he grew up doing the the ice hockey and you know, a lot of that as a kid. So he's got, and his dad was a former top 50 pro and won a doubles grand slam, Martin Dam senior. So again, he's, he's got some good genes there for a big guy, good mover. And that could be something that helps him as a big guy. If he breaks through to the tour, that's definitely something that's going to help him as a big guy be, you know, as 
with his athleticism. And then, you know, another younger guy was Shintaro uh, Moshizuki, who was the 2016 Wimbledon a boys champion as yeah, as a young 16-year-old. He's an absolutely incredible mover, uh, very efficient around the court. He's someone that relies on his movements as part of his game, cutting off balls, coming forward, he loves coming forwards. And and so you look at you look at players like that and go, well, if they don't have their movement, where can they get to? Let's throw it back. As a young kid, you played tennis. You obviously you were good enough to get a scholarship in the state. What was your tennis dream as a kid going to college? Were you going to be pro or what was going on in your head? Yeah, well, I think like every kid that loves the sport, they, they their dreams are, are being pro. I think from a young age, I, I was set with a little bit of realistic expectations and in that my my brother, who's, who's about 18 months older than me, he was a very, very good junior tennis player. He represented Great Britain. He played on teams with Andy Murray and Jamie Murray. So I, I as a kid, you know, I love tennis, but I played other sports. I went around the country just watching my brother play these high-level events week in, week out against young Andy Murrays and Jamie Murrays and other guys that age. And, you know, I had that re- realistic expectation on myself that hey, I'm, I'm not even close to being this good. But if I keep working hard, I'll see how good I can get. And so college tennis was the obvious route for me. And I thought, you know, my first year or two of college, I had had great, as I say, like great four years, good success. And um, when I got to my senior year of college, I still had those like outside dreams of, you know, like I could give this a crack, you know, I can give this a go. But I remember playing, I was playing exceptionally well. I, I only lost maybe three matches my senior year in college okay. and one of those matches was i played a futures or a 15k 10, 10k back then in the in the fall so around you know september october uh, 2008 and i played a i qualified for the main draw got through four rounds of qualities had to beat a couple guys that were 750 900 in the world which again just to get through qualities to main draw through that it, it was pretty tough and then in the first round, I played a young Nikolai Basishvili. Okay. And the kid was 16, just made like finals of the Futures the week before. So we had a special exempt into the main draw. And I played the guy and I was playing very well for me. I mean, very well. And the kid looked like he was in like third gear, still had a couple levels to go. And he took me out six and six. And that was sort of a, a, a hit on the head going, look, like, you know, this kid's 16 and clearly on a path to the pros. And obviously he was, you know, he's a, he's a good player. <laughs> and I think that was to me set some, some that those realistic expectations came back in going, well, maybe, you know, I'm a good player, but maybe I'm not that good to, to be able to make this as a living. But I was also very passionate about coaching and helping people too. My dad's a tennis coach. My brother's into coaching now. So teaching and coaching has always been a part of our family and who we are and helping helping other players. So uh, when I finished in my senior year, when I finished at the NCAA tournament, I started getting calls from all these parents around Albuquerque, New Mexico. Can you coach my son? Can you coach my daughter? And so I said, you know, yeah, I'll do this for the summer. And then maybe I, you know, I try go play. But I got into coaching and I was just loving it. You know, I was, I was loving helping other players i was that that going and playing and pursuing those dreams especially under those realistic expectations were were becoming apparent i was like well you know coaching and teaching is going to be my career so why not get a start start on it now because i'm just as passionate about it so that's what i did were you up like when you did when you played uh bashas 
and you came to this realization that look these kids are so good here they're so much younger they're on their upward trajectory was it tough to take first of all getting beaten by a 16 year old kid who you probably thought you might you know you had a good week beforehand but you probably thought look i have this kid was that a tough thing to swallow and then thinking okay well maybe the pro tour isn't for me or were you just quite realist about it and go look let's just move on here yeah well to be fair when i was playing him i didn't realize he was 16 because he 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 had a beard close to what he has now so he was uh, (laughs) was very developed for a 16 year old Uh, it was only afterwards that my coach was like yeah that, that, that that georgian kid over there is like 16 i was like oh christ Again, I've been around enough like really good young tennis players from a young age that I, you know, like you grow up watching Andy Murray, who was two years younger than everybody else, but playing higher birth year, uh, you know, higher age groups. You watch guys like that yeah. and you go, yeah, these, these kids are just exceptional. They're just on another level. They're on another trajectory. So, you know, that that's their path. So, you know, it wasn't, I just took it and was like, you know, I played well, I'm happy, move on. And, you know, good luck to this kid who's clearly got a good, good career ahead of him so nah, it was it was fine just moved on and had a good rest of the year and you mentioned Andy Murray what was he like as a young kid well not not very dissimilar to what he is now unbelievable competitor feisty he would figure out a way to win any match any match I remember watching one match where he played my brother and I think Andy may have been like six two three love down in the match and you know he was he was angry with himself he was you know struggling with his emotions and he was a young kid so you know struggling with that side of it and then all of a sudden he he like snapped at three love like whatever might may have happened like blasted a ball whatever hit his racket on the floor whatever and then all of a sudden at three love the guy decided to just change personalities (laughs) change like a light switch and I don't think my brother more, won more than two games from that point on. And it may have been like 6-3, 6-1 to Andy from that point. And as you, you, know, as you can see in the pros now, he's got the, that ability, that fight, that beast-like competitiveness to, and hunger that exists there. It, it, you know, he had that when he was a kid and you could see that. And the way that he figured out ways to win points using the drop shot, you know, giving you junk balls and then playing heavy balls, coming forward... You know, it was um, it was pretty impressive to to think back on it now. You know, but he had a, he had some great coaching. His mum was, you know, a fantastic tennis coach that developed a lot of great young Scottish players that came through. And Andy was surrounded by some really good players. You know, and it was a good good little environment that Judy had created up there in Scotland with these young players. So, uh, but Andy was just again another another case you could see he was clearly on another trajectory than the you know, the average good tennis player. So did you know it as a, as a young player, like, did you look up to Andy as a kid? I know you're probably similar ages, but did you think this kid's definitely going to make it? Yeah. Well, Andy was, Andy's my age, you know, we were the same sort of, you know, age group and he was playing two years up. So when I was watching Andy, I'm like, well, if I want to be a pro tennis player, I have to figure out how to beat this good. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when when I was a kid, it was like I was so far away from that that um, you know that's what that's what sets in some some realistic expectations. But you know, when a few years later you see the guy lift a you know U.S. Open junior trophy mm. over his head, and I think everyone looks up to Andy right now. I think everyone looks up to it to you know not just what he's doing now now post surgery, but obviously 
the way in which he has scrapped and competed in this era to win the titles he has, the Olympics, the Grand Slams. I, I mean, it's 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 commendable, and he's 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 somebody that I think a lot of people, you know, look at his characteristics and go, yeah, I want to do more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Look up to someone like Andy. It was a, uh, you know, it was a privilege kind of growing up around that and now watching what he's doing now. It's uh, you know, it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, I could say it was such a privilege being able to witness, you know, history, you know, you could say history in the making, but from such a young age. But going back to your, your coaching days when you decided to go coaching, you're getting the calls from the locals down in New Mexico. For those that don't know, where is New Mexico in the whole state's <laughs> yeah, landscape? New, New Mexico is me. in the. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of people, including Americans, kind of thought New Mexico was actually in Mexico, but no, it's, it's the state wedged between Texas and then Arizona. So as you go across, you've got Texas, you've got New Mexico, you've got Arizona, and then you, and then you hit El, uh, California. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dry state. It's a mile-high altitude. Um, it's dry, kind of, you know, very, remind you, very similar of south of Spain for those that have been there, and you know, especially in the summers, dry, hot. And it's, you know, for me, you know, at the time, it was a, I made a choice round going there for for the coaches that were going to make me better but looking back at it now the the altitude probably wasn't the best for my game I'm about five foot eight love to scrap around the court and you know playing at altitude where you're seeing big serves big shots and points are very short so uh, from an environmental standpoint may not have been the best for my tennis but I got a lot out of it so yeah New Mexico is right there kind of wedge between those two states okay great and those early college day or sorry in those early coaching days what were your hardest challenges i think my hardest challenge i you know i think it's getting the balance between you know we were running a business too so so it was managing some of the other stuff off off the court you know the parent building parent relationships i think for me i was i love learning i want to get really good at what i do and, you know, like any coach that is gets bogged down in the weeds and the day-to-day coaching, you have to find these opportunities to keep learning and growing, you know, and, and for me, I'm somebody that gets a bit antsy if I feel like I'm not continually learning something or creating something and moving forward. So, you know, early on, it was kind of wrestling with that a little bit. I was trying to find my feet, trying to figure out, well, what is my philosophies as a, as a tennis coach? All these things you're wrestling with, and as a young, you know, I think young coaches, you come out, you want to make a good impression, you want to um, show that you know what you're doing, you know, you're proving yourself. But I, and I think that's a challenge. I don't think you really have to come out and prove yourself. You just have to, you have to learn what helps you become a better coach, and you have to sieve out maybe some of the stuff that doesn't. So, you know, a lot of those challenges are just centered around internal, internal growth stuff, and you know, understanding that coaching is more about just coaching a player on the tennis court. It's about managing the relationships around that. And that's really important to create these teams. You know, it doesn't matter what level of player you're teaching. You know, everyone has a little team around them that includes the parents, that may include other coaches, that may include a fitness coach, that may include a mental coach, especially as you go higher up in levels. And you have to recognize that you are part of a team here. And, you know, you have to let your ego disappear and go, yes, I'm helping you with your tennis. I'm going to help you move forwards. We're going to do this as a team. And I think that helps the player feel, you know, because tennis can be, you know, as you know, tennis can be a lonely sport. You know, I think we just mentioned you had sort of Eager's men- mental mental skills coach on that she spent a lot of time with. And, 
you know, it could be a lonely sport if you don't have a lot of people around in, even at the younger ages, right? It's, uh, you're one-on-one, you're figuring out as a kid, how to, how to battle one-on-one out there. And knowing that you've got a bit of a team around you, I think is, is really helpful in helping you move forward. So for me as a young coach, it was really getting, getting to grasp and understanding those things and, um, keeping things simple as well. Uh, not overcomplicating things. I think everybody's guilty at some point in their coaching of overcomplicating, whatever it may be, overcomplicating technique, using too many words, explaining things too much. And we already, you know, we are, we're already in a sport that's highly complicated. There's a lot of moving parts to it. And I think our job, and I think it's a skill that is developed for many coaches, is the skill to simplify. And how did you make sure you were, you were improving, you were learning? What was your, your strategy to ensure, you know, you weren't getting restless? Yeah, so I, I was actually very fortunate when I started coaching in New Mexico. I, I went, uh, got invited to a lot of sort of USTA coach ed, USTA player development, coach education opportunities actually out in Carson, LA, where I'm working now. To be sitting in a room with 120 coaches from around the country that have very good programs, very good coaches, and the USTA coaches themselves, to be in a room with people like Jose Higueres, uh, Tom Gullickson, Kathy Rinaldi, um, Andy Brandy, uh, Richard Ashby. I mean, players that, you know, Brad Stein, who's you know, now coaching Tommy Paul, and then, you know, another support people like, that's where I met Dr. Larry Lauer, Dr. Paul Lubbers, who are coach educators and, and mental skill specialists. To be sitting in a room, be able to pick the brains of these people was like, it, it was it was absolute transformational experience for me as a young coach. I took so much from those experiences. When I ended up going back to the UK, as mentioned earlier you know, in my intro, I the reason I was I wanted to go into Gosling, a, a friend asked me to help him out, the coach, he was trying to make it pro, uh, was helping him out. I went into Gosling and I spent a lot of time there in my, you know, when I could, because I wanted to learn from different different coaches. Uh, I was learning from different, you know, I was learning from a guy called Daz Drake and his team who did all the strength and conditioning. I was learning from Matt Wilcox's team at Gosling. Uh, Matt Wilcox was more of sort of the director of the program, you know, watching him sort of manage and lead that. And then all the coaches, I mean, I got so much out of that, that sort of two year span. I was back in the UK. And one of the big reasons after, you know, I came back to the US and then did my program and then got offered the job at USTA in Orlando. Um, one of the big reasons I said yes to that job was to be centered around all these incredible, what I would call master coaches, so I could just learn and grow. And I remember my first year in Orlando, I spent so much time just watching, watching Richard Ashby work with tennis, young, young, young girl tennis players, watching Andy Brandy work with the, with the best younger boys, other coaches like Laurie Riffis, who's women's national coach, who's the mom of Sam Riffis. NCAA champion. And then John Glover, who was just an unbelievable teacher of the game. I mean, learning from all these coaches, I was, I was getting that like two, three hours every day watching these guys. So, and then what I'd do is I'd go back and I'd write down notes. I'd be just, I'm a relentless like notebook taker. So I'd go back, write down these notes. And then what I didn't realize at the time though, is all this, all this learning that I'd gone through was all, you know, it all gets put into the memory. All this was starting to forge you know, it's become a lot clearer the way in which I wanted to coach, the way I wanted to be, the type of personality of a coach, you know, that you want to be. And 
those were in just invaluable learning experiences. You know, there's many things I did as a coach that I just went and did for free to go and to just be in an environment of learning. And I kind of felt like when I was younger, you know, yeah, you got to, there's a certain element you've got to pay your dues, learn, grow, you know, and sometimes you sacrifice, you know, you need to sacrifice a little bit of yeah. the money in order to know what the bigger picture is. And the bigger picture is, is to become, try to become, you know, the best you can be in your craft. And so that was, that was the, that was the way that keeps me pushing. I mean, I, I'm very connected to my goals and my purpose, and I'm very passionate about it. And I think as you know, I, I see with, with your social media accounts and, and you're like, you only do what you do because you're passionate about it, right? And if you're passionate about it, everything starts to become a little bit clearer over time. And so that's really what keeps driving me. I think there's something there for a lot of younger coaches that I hope could learn from is that, you know, it's okay if you're not exactly coming out and making a ton of money right away in the coaching world. If you double down and focus on just learning as much as you can, as quick as you can, and processing it all, then at some point down the road, that's, you know, you're going to be where you want to be. But I, I get a sense now that there's a lot of young coaches that come into the coaching world and, and feel like they need to be in high performance. I've got to be in this environment. And it's like taking a step back and realizing that there's a lot of learning that needs to happen before you can actually really deeply help a player. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was more of a business one than a sports one, but it made total sense to what you're saying. It was like, look, finish college, you spend your, you should spend your 20s just soaking yourself up with you know, people who you want to be and people at the top of the game, whether it's business, whether it's uh, coaching, and learn from as many people as possible. Then you go into your 30s and you try and execute then. It was it made a lot of sense because sometimes you get people in their 40s maybe a bit lost because, you know, that you've tried to do it in your 20s and then you're like, you know, you run out of ideas quickly and then it's good to be surrounded by people who've done it already and you sort of learn, nearly learn the formula of how they've done it and you then try and incorporate different things from different people to help build your with a coaching personality or business personality and then you go and execute so i think you did quite well surrounding yourself by so many different people and learning taking notes i think it comes with saying though but you, you've got to have people willing to mentor you as well you know and, and there's something to be said for that because if, if if you don't check your ego at the door and you go into these environments and situations you find that people don't want to help you you know if you come if you come to the table with a bit of arrogance or, or a bit of know-it-all yes type type mentality then people don't want to help you as much i don't think i would have had the steps i've had in my my career so far had i not approached things with a completely open mind and gone you know actually i don't know i don't know much about this there is so much i can learn about this and if you if you have that approach and you genuinely have that approach and and, and that's who you are then you'll find these these people they want to help you you know, they, they want to help you be better and use their knowledge to help other people is, is a gift. It is. It's a gift. People don't have to give you that gift. You know, they can keep that knowledge to themselves, that they their experiences to themselves to better their, the people that they're working with, but for them to be able to spend the time with other, other people. So I think it goes both ways, you know, here it's, 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 uh, like you said, I think you need that help, have that support, learn, but also says a lot about the people that are willing to help you understand their experiences and their knowledge. Yeah, no, I, look, I feel that most people want to help successful people want to help in some capacity and it's down to, and you said the younger person or 
are they open are they you know are they arrogant are they you know so if you go about it the right way i think people see you actually want to learn and i think it's a good feeling for somebody who has been successful and they can show other people the ropes and you know leave some sort of impact on them and but i think it comes down to more how you go about it this is a great point from johnny it's not just about surrounding yourself with successful people or people more knowledgeable than you you need to have open mind and a positive attitude they say the best learners are the best listeners so i think what johnny's saying here is excellent advice for any coach did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches players trainers and experts working at the highest level of the game tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast and to listen to our great back catalog of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis go to functionaltennispodcast.com just a quick reminder you're listening to the functional tennis podcast the podcast that helps you get one percent better every day with me fabio molly Coming up on the podcast, Johnny reveals what it was like to work for IMG, and Johnny tells me about his exciting new role. But before that, let's get to when Johnny was unexpectedly forced to return to the UK. Let's let's move on now. So you're coaching. What exactly happens? You end up back in the UK. Visa problems. How stressful was that at the time? Where you've sort of a business going, or you're learning, you're in a good environment, and all of a sudden you're like you're getting shipped back to the UK. <laughs> You're bringing up some some painful memories here. No, you know, I look at it this way. I mean, first of all, let me just say before I say all this, I'm I'm a very I'm very fortunate to have a family that is willing to support me and help me and have always tried to help me with my goals. So before I say this, I'm I'm not going to try and come across as somebody that's you know really hard done by. I've I've got about a very supportive family but yeah but when i when i moved away from home at 13 i I had to learn a lot of things on my own i had to learn how to become independent very very quickly when i moved to the us right that was now completely leaving the nest i'd already left the nest at 13 but family was only four hours away you know up the up the m5 and m6 and then now um, i'm in america figuring it out when i graduated it, it yeah i felt like this was my home i had my my girlfriend who's now my wife and i had my job right i'd set up sort of my career career social life and you know and and, and home life so when all that was you know and i got that call to say look you need to you need to get back to the uk because you know whatever issues i'm not going to bore you with those details it was just an unfortunate yeah, yeah. circumstance I remember the first month being back at home, I'm like sitting on, on a bed in my bedroom in my dad's house, which I hadn't been for like since 12, 13 years old. And I'm sitting there and I wrote just for a month. I'm like, the hell am I going to do? Like I had everything, I had everything set up. I had my own business. I had my girlfriends over there, my, you know, I was like, and then I'm sat back in the same place I was at when I was 12. It was a really hard, hard realization that, that that was what was happening. And so I remember, you know, I started going to work out, just go to the gym a lot to process things. I kept reading different books and all of a sudden I was like, right, I got to figure out a way forward. So I ended up going, moving down to London and working on my master's in sports management. And I, that's where I started coaching at Regent's Park and, and at Gosling, you know, but 
you know, I was faced with a choice is I can sit on this bed and moan and cry and complain about it, or I can, my back's up against the wall right now. I could do something about it. So I decided, I was like, well, let's start swinging for the fences again, right? Let's go, let's go. You know, I wasn't going to burden my, my parents, although I sure they would have loved me to have been around. <laughs> I wasn't going to burden them with a 22 year old who's or 23 year old that's come back from college or 23, 24, can't even remember not going to burden them with 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 me you know they've spent big part of their lives supporting me and helping me they're not they ain't going to do it now and i was very stubborn in that regard so i moved down to london and you know i was just took the approach i'm like what would i do in a tennis match if i was you know heavily down in a match i, I was like i wouldn't just quit it's not in me i've never quit a match in my life so i'm not going to quit now so get up and figure it out and that's what i did i you know, I, you know, I relied on some of my connections that I'd made in America. One of those connections actually through, through USTA stuff was Anne Pankhurst, who, who's okay. pretty renowned throughout, throughout the UK, but around the world did a lot of stuff with the PTR coaching program. Um, I reached out to her to connect me, you know, with a couple people and got my, you know, went and did my level three coach ed stuff with the LTA. That's where I got connected with, with other people too. So yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, this way you can look at like life and tennis very similar. You know, when you're on the tennis court, do you, do you bail out or do you fight back? And for me, I felt like I was in this situation where I could just bail out or or make it happen. So that's I chose to try and figure out a way to move forward. And so you were set on. I'm going back to this. I'm figuring out a way here. Going back to the states. Yeah, well, so, you know, the kind of ironic thing is, is before I left, I had a bunch of friends that were just like, why don't you just ask your girlfriend to marry you and go that route? And I was like, well, the minute I started going through these issues, and to be honest, we we were fairly close. I was fairly close to doing that. Um, But the minute I started having these visa issues, I was like, there's no way I'm going to like, you know, do that because it'll be clouded by by doubt, right? Like, is he, you know, is he just asking me because he wants a green card or something? So I was like, you know what? No, I'll go back to the UK, figure it out. We'll work through it. But yeah, I mean, after I was back in the UK, about six months after I've been in the UK, my my girlfriend came to visit me in in the UK, and uh, I proposed. And then sixteen months later, so I was able to get back to the US, and you know, I settled in New Mexico with with her, and you know, we figured it out. So yeah, it was about a two and a half year stint back in the UK, two year stint back in the UK. But yeah, it was. It's been a journey. And moving forward to the USTA, or sorry, IMG. What was it like, like working with such a prestigious place? Like we've all heard IMG from the early Agassi days at the Boletari camp. How much inspiration did you get from working there? Well, it was very a, a lot, a lot. Um, it was very, very apparent very quickly that that uh, that IMG was steeped in Boletari history. And although, you know, the organization has moved on from that original Boletieri Academy concept, Nick Boletieri changed the world, you know, changed, changed, changed the world in, in how we develop players and the environments that we create for players. And some of those environments are exceptional environments. You know, he's not only just changed it in tennis, but he's changed the model for other sports. But he was, a, you know, he was around a lot. I got a incredible, you know, nice, probably one of the, one of the most not, you know incredible things that I think a young young coach like myself could get from Nick with, with, was a was a huge compliment about the program we were putting in at ING there. But to have him around, to have him around all the time, was you know he's an icon. 
he's an icon. And so to see an icon like that driving around in the golf cart, stopping by, watching your session for 30 minutes, you know, calling you over, hey, Johnny boy, my boy, come over here, <laughs> you know, and, you know, give you a couple little little pointers and things. And, you know, it's it just incredible. And you you can't take that for granted. And, you know, a lot of other great coaches there uh, and people, and that grew up in that environment as players that now work there are making such a huge impact on, on a lot of young people's lives there. You forget that now that place is a, it's a sport academy and you have a lot of kids that are living away from home from an early age. So in many ways, you are more than a tennis coach. You are more than a strength and conditioning fitness coach. You know, many times I felt myself actually kind of being a life coach. I felt myself being, you know, an unqualified counselor where you've got kids sitting in, in your office upset over something and, and you have to help them work through that. And so it, it was an incredibly inspiring environment on many fronts, not just for the people in it, the, from, from a professional perspective, co-workers, Nick being around. But it was inspiring because of seeing so many young people dedicate and make that commitment. Like I made, I made that commitment at 13 to move away from home because I wanted to play tennis. And I had to do that if I wanted to be high-level player, you know, seeing so many of these kids make that commitment at a young age, I could really resonate with that. And um, that's inspiring because then these kids, you see them and, you know, there's a lot of kids there working their, their tails off, you know, they're working hard and, you know, you forget as well. And, you know, regardless, I think what, what many of us, maybe somewhat older people now can think about the younger generations, they're still going through the same things that we had to go through. They, you know, whether they have the same level of support or not, or less support. I mean, everyone's case is different, but yeah. they they are inspiring the people in that environment. And many of those kids that I helped for a couple, you know, the two years that I was there, you know, there's quite a lot of them that that played Australian Open juniors this year. And so you you see that and go, you know, good for them. You know, you see the level of commitment that these kids put in an environment like that, and they deserve the success that they will you know, that, that will happen. You know, I mean, I think like everywhere, mm -hmm. look, everywhere's got its challenges. You, you, you're never going to walk into an environment and it's going to be the perfect scenario. It's always going to be its challenges. So you've got to work through those challenges and, and in order to make sure you've got the bigger picture in the front of your mind, which is helping, helping these players become, reach their goals or helping them reach their goals and become as good as they want to be. So yeah, that, that environment was pretty special for those reasons. Accountability is a big thing in players in everything in life, but how did you ensure the players you worked with had accountability and they were taking responsibility? How, how do you track that? How do you monitor that? Well, I think like with, uh, like with any of us, if you don't show up, you can't get better. So accountability, I think you're, you're, you're dead right there in, in that. That's, I think that's the number one thing in, in any of us in, in, in learning and getting better and is holding ourselves, holding other people accountable. And the manner in which you do that, though, it can either be sort of this transaction feel, right? I say you do, in which case that the person you're getting them to do that is, is probably not going to be that bought in and they're going to go through the motions with it. Or it can be a little bit more, tra you know, transform them. And it's getting them to understand the, the pros and cons of their choices. Okay, you choose not to come today. Well, that's fine if you need the rest to help you out. But if you choose not to come today, you're potentially missing out on these benefits. So a lot of it was presenting choices. Accountability was about helping them understand the responsibility first. 
and their responsibility and their development and their growth. So look, S&C, you know, for us, the fitness side, a lot of the times we were battling kids to, well, not a lot of the time, to begin with, you're battling kids to show up consistently. Well, I've just played for three hours and four hours. I'm so tired. I'm like, yeah, listen, I completely get it. You know, we have a 7 a.m. track session and it's like they'd rather hit the snooze button and lie in and then just show up at tennis at 8, 8.15. I say, okay, well, fine. Like, you know, you'll, you'll get a little bit better at tennis today, but when you are in a deep in a third set and you are struggling physically and mentally, you know, you can't complain about that. You can't make excuses because you made the choice not to put in the work. So for me, we have to help them understand their responsibility in their own development. We have to help them understand their choices, which is then the accountability piece. And we have to help them take ownership. True accountability is when someone takes full ownership over the decisions they make and they're willing to accept the, the consequences without making excuses or complaining, right? So, so our job really is to, to go through this process of responsibility, accountability, and then complete ownership over what they're doing. You know, when you're working with young players, you are teaching that. Um, you're not demanding it, you are teaching it. And if you demand it, you're probably not going to have the best relationship with your players, uh, from my experience. So yeah, it, it, I think what we do is, and I mean, what, what we like to say is, is, you know, be a teacher first and a coach second. What I don't, what I personally don't like about tennis, what I like about running, let's say, or weightlifting is if you put in the work, you get the results. Tennis, you can put in the work and sometimes not get the results. Like if you're training for, I don't know, a sub 25K, you know, if you if you do what you tell me to do, you're going to do, you're going to get there. Uh, you know, and you can see those, it's so more visible. And same with weightlifting. If you do the work, you'll get to the weights. You have to lift the weights or so many other sports like that. But tennis, you can do the work. I know you can be unlucky with draws and that, but sometimes that's what I find harder to process is it's not as clear as time-based activities, let's say, and it requires other skills as well, but it's mentally tougher. But that's, even though I love tennis so much, that's what frustrates me so much because I personally more like that. You know, you put in the work, you get the results. And sometimes tennis, you put in the results, you don't get the work, for me anyway, but... No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, we, we spent a lot of time at IMG trying to figure out how to connect, really get the fitness to connect with what they're doing on the court. And so a lot of what we did was connect really the physical characteristics of certain game styles, physical characteristics of certain game styles. Obviously, if you're like a counterattack, a counterpuncher, you've got to have bigger lungs, right? Bigger lungs and legs that can run around the court a little bit longer. You know, if you're an all-court player or, you know, net rusher, whatever, which obviously doesn't happen as much anymore, but you've got to be a little bit more explosive. You're cutting off the diagonals. You're, you're, you're shooting forwards to the net. Um, so you've got to be a bit more, more speed and explosive. doesn't mean to say that you don't have great endurance, right? You obviously got to have great endurance, um, but those physical characteristics. So we would, we would try and align a lot of what the, the players were doing, especially the higher groups, right? The higher skilled level yeah. players. We would try and align their fitness and what they were doing. And it really explained to them the why. Well, why am I doing this type of interval set and that player's doing a longer interval set? Well, we're working a bit more on that speed and explosiveness because your game is all court player. So we need you to be explosive, be able to get to the net and cover as much ground in, in as little time as possible, right? That player there, you know, is a counter attacker, 
right? So they're doing slightly longer intervals because they're going to be doing a little bit more lateral movement side to side, chasing down balls, countering them around, and they're not going to be performing as maybe as many sharp, short, explosive movements diagonally or forwards. Now, obviously, in tennis, everyone's got to perform every type of movement, um, but there are subtle nuances within different game styles. And, and, then, and then what you start to see with the pros now is there's blended game styles, right? You've got, let's say, someone like Tommy Paul that probably was like a counter-attacker a few years ago that then kind of morphed through this aggressive baseliner. And now you kind of look at him being he's a bit more of an all-court player with how much he's going forwards mm-hmm. to the net. So it, it, it switches and changes too. But but a big part of trying to connect the, the fitness is connected to the, to the tennis court. And as you say, like, and I've always told this with players, it doesn't matter unless you feel it's working, right? It, if, if you feel that it's having a benefit, then yeah, then you, we keep going. But it only matters if you actually feel like it's making a difference on the tennis court. And, if that's, and that's why we can't, especially as strength, conditioning and fitness coaches, you, you, you can't forget that you could make them the best athlete in the world, but if they don't have the skill to perform, it's no good. So that's where it comes back to your comment there. You can put in all the work, you can put in the hard graft, but are you working on the actual things that are going to make you better? Right? If you can't slice and you get exploited every match, it doesn't matter how good you are at moving to your slice. <laughs> if you can't hit the slice, yeah, yeah. you're going to struggle. You know, If every time you get a, you get a volley, you, you chunk it, Right, it doesn't matter how quick you are getting to the net, you're going to chunk the volley. So at the end of the day, you, you've got to be so detailed in, in what actually needs to get better. And, and all, you know, a lot of the mental skills and the physical skills, these are all the things that enable you to do what, what you want to do, right? But, but how you do it is definitely very much centered with on the tennis court, with the racket in hand, and the decisions you make to play certain shots in certain moments. And we can't forget that. Um, that is that is always going to be number one for a tennis player. Always, always. And okay, Johnny, so moving on to today, new role. Just tell us briefly what the new role is, what the opportunities are, and why you're excited with it. Yeah, so I got a, a call back from the USTA to to oversee their their junior programming in in their West Coast facility in Carson, California, as um, lead national coach. Uh, I was very excited about it because it gave, gives me the opportunity to get back on the tennis court more. And it, it was very evident to me at IMG. I was like, you know, I was always out watching so much of the kids play tennis and the coaches coaching. I was like, I'm, I'm loving doing what I'm doing, but I miss this. I do. I miss it. And so I thought, you know, at some point I will navigate back to the tennis court because, you know, I think mm. at heart, that's who I am. Uh, yeah. When I got this call, they explained the opportunity to oversee the program it's to you know connect with a lot of the players, the coaches, parents in this area on the West Coast, provide a lot of training opportunities to some of the top prospects in this area, to put on training camps, which we're going to start doing a lot more this year. So in many ways, it's a little similar to the job I was doing before for the USTA with a lot of supplemental training camps. But then, you know, we do have players that come very frequently as well on a day-to-day basis that are committed to trying to be a professional tennis player. And so for me as well, it's, you know, I, I still want to do the day-to-day coaching, which I get to do, but we also get to go out there and connect with other coaches, connect with 
other US, you know, USTA sections like the SoCal section and how they do things. And so there's still a lot of relationship building uh, within the role, which is something that I love to do. As you know, we've, we've talked about here is learning from other people and, you know, being on the West Coast, I've sort of been on the East Coast and the whole thing, Orlando, Bradenton, yeah. now coming over to the West Coast. It's, it's, it's a whole new group of people, right? new different environments different 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 way of different perspectives different way of looking at things so that that was what was exciting about the role like like i said before like anywhere there's good there's challenges but i'm excited to, to be back on the court excited to be connecting with a whole new different type you know breed of you know let's say people over here on the west coast different programs yeah i'm excited for that nice i have two more questions for you and then you can get back to your your coaching duties. First question is at Function Center's podcast, we're all about getting 1% better every day. So, what in your ex for you, give us some advice on how to get 1% better every day? 1%. So, again, I'm a big note taker. To be get 1% better every day means that you got to learn something every day. So, at the end of every day, or even might happen in the middle of every day, when you learn something, you write it down because by doing that, you're retaining that information, you're storing it in, and then you, you have a plan to do something with it. So there's no point in learning something if you don't have a plan of what to do with it. So being able to write that down is the first step in that process of solidifying that, that in, new information and then working out how you're going to use it to become better. And so keeping things simple like that, it's about being a relentless learner. So the 1%, is the details, right? So I, I often say that we can't get to the 1% unless we're taking care of the big stuff first. Once you get to the 1%, you're talking about details. Well, a lot of the time, details just means doing simple really, really, really well. And simple can mean get a notebook, write down what you learned, and create a plan for that, for that new learning. Uh, and so for me, that, 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 would be my big, that would be my advice there for, for getting a little bit better every day. Thank you. And... You spoke to the late Nick Boliteri. What did you learn from being surrounded by him? Passion. Nick, <laughs> into his 90s, an incredibly passionate person. Do everything you can with passion. And if you do that, you are, you'll get better, but you'll help a lot of people in the process. Nick was somebody that wanted to help people. And he was willing to make that happen any way possible. He'd give us stories about, you know, giving this player full scholarship, that player full scholarship, but that guy wanted to help people. So I think I wouldn't necessarily say I learned it from him, but what he was a strong reminder of was that nothing should get in the way of your passion and nothing should get in the way of your mission of helping others. Sometimes you just need a reminder, don't you? You know, you know, you've learned the lesson before, but you may forget or you just need a little... Oh, remember me or little thing. So, yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, thank you very much, Johnny. Uh, I'm excited to hear how the new journey goes. Hopefully some more videos coming through over the next few months. And, uh, yeah, best of luck with the new role. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thanks for everything you're doing. Uh, you know, love uh, love all the content. And, uh, you know, I try to buy the new the, 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 the Sabre when it first came out, but you sold out like that. Like it was crazy. So I tried to go purchase one. It sold out like that. But, anyway, appreciate everything you're doing. And, uh yeah, I love it. So uh, thanks for also posting my content. Appreciate it.
that's all the time we have in the podcast this week. Thank you very much, Johnny, for coming on. I'm sure a lot of future top players will be helped by you and keep up with the great content as well. You can follow Johnny on Instagram at Johnny underscore Parks. Thank you all at home for listening to the show. Next week on the podcast, I speak to Belgian coach Olivier Grignard. In our conversation, Olivier explains how his tennis journey began. Olivier also tells me about his coaching role in China, working with world-renowned coach Carlos Rodriguez, who famously coached Li Na and Justine Hennen. And we discuss some of the cultural differences between juniors in Europe and juniors in Asia, and much more. Just a few quick notes before we go. Make sure to follow the show so you get automatically notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to learn more about me or the work we do at Functional Tennis, visit our website at functionaltennis.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at the Functional Tennis Podcast and with me on Twitter, Fab Mall. This podcast is produced by One Fine Play. James Bishop is the executive producer. Connor Foley is the series producer. I've been your host, Fabio Molly. Thanks for listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. <laughs>